Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Shiva Mozaferian, and today we're addressing the second topic in the CAPE series, pain and fatigue associated with inflammatory arthritis such as psoriatic arthritis and spondylar arthritis. Joining me for this discussion are renowned rheumatologists Dr. Philip Meese and Dr. Ernest Choi along with patient perspectives from Melissa Lulu and Mignonette or Minnie Wilson. Dr. Meese is the Director of Rheumatology Research at Swedish Medical Center in Providence St. Joseph Health, as well as a clinical professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, Washington. He's a founder, past president, and now co-chair of GRAPA's Education Committee. His clinical practice is based at Seattle Rheumatology Associates. Dr. Choi is Head of Rheumatology and Translational Research at the Division of Infection and Immunity and Director of the Cardiff Regional Experimental Arthritis Treatment and Evaluation CREATE Center at Cardiff University School of Medicine in Cardiff, Wales. He is also the Honorary Consultant Rheumatologist at University Hospital of Wales and Clinical Lead of the Welsh Arthritis Research Network, or WARN. Dr. Choi chaired the ULAR Task Force on Developing Recommendations for Management and Classification Criteria for Fibromyalgia in 2007 and is currently a member of the ULAR Quality of Care Committee. Melissa was diagnosed with psoriasis as a baby and psoriatic arthritis as a young adult. She's a former ballerina, science researcher, and is now in her third year of medical school at Stanford Medical School in California. Minnie has also had psoriasis since she was a baby, and due to various healthcare issues, diagnosis for her psoriatic arthritis with axial manifestations wasn't confirmed until her 40s and 50s. She struggled with pain and fatigue her whole life, which impacted both her personal life and her career. We'll hear more about how Melissa and Minnie cope with pain and fatigue soon. This episode is being brought to you by CAPES, Clinical and Patient Education Series, a joint collaboration with the National Psoriasis Foundation. GRAPA, or Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis, Spartan, Spondyloarthritis Research and Treatment Network, and the Spondylitis Association of America. This collaboration is intended to increase awareness about the management of psoriatic arthritis and axial spondyloarthritis. Episodes will address why it occurs, management of pain and fatigue, treatment options, and the role of diet and exercise. From time to time, MPF shares sponsored content that we think is a benefit to those with psoriatic disease. MPF encourages anyone living with psoriatic disease to work with their healthcare providers to find an appropriate treatment for them. MPF does not offer medical advice, and this podcast should not be considered an endorsement of any particular product or treatment. Welcome, Dr. Meese, Dr. Choi, Melissa, and Minnie. It's such a pleasure having you on Soundbites today. Let's first hear from Melissa and Minnie, who live with psoriatic arthritis and spondylar arthritis. Results from a recent focus group study led by Dr. Meese identified pain and fatigue as important factors when thinking about how psoriatic arthritis impacts their lives. As someone who lives with the disease and prior to finding the right treatment, were pain and fatigue key concerns for you? Melissa, let's start with you. 
Sure. So pain has definitely been my focus in terms of disease management, but that's not to say that fatigue isn't a significant problem. One reason why pain has been my focus is simply that it poses the largest barrier to my normal function, meaning if I can't move my joints because of pain, then no matter how deeply fatigued I am, I'm mostly concerned with mobility and function. But I think another important reason why pain has been my treatment goal thus far is that when we as patients describe our disease course to physicians, it's really challenging to put the experience of disease into words. But pain is fairly easy to understand because I think we've all felt it in some way before, and it's very clearly a deviation from good health, so it requires a form of definitive medical treatment. And pain from the patient perspective also encompasses a variety of symptoms like joint stiffness and inflammation or swelling. So I tend to have pain as my primary treatment goal because it just feels like the biggest priority to me. But on the other hand, I truly experience pathological fatigue. But even here talking about it, I feel the need to qualify my fatigue by saying pathological. And I think that kind of represents the problem that patients face when they're being candid about their disease experience. Because not everyone lives with pain every day. Many or most people experience some version of fatigue regularly because we all work hard and feel tired. But with my disease, I could literally sleep for more than 12 hours, wake up tired, and have my body ready to collapse again by 2 p.m. in the afternoon in a way where it feels really hard to function. But I still find it hard to articulate the ways in which fatigue disrupts my life because I feel in some ways judged by others who can't rightly help but think to themselves, well, I'm tired too, and kind of how do you qualify that? But with all of that said, I'm all the more excited for new research and investigations that interrogate the relationship between pain and fatigue, particularly in the context of joint disease and chronic pain. Because I think as we learn more about what's happening within our bodies in a scientific way, it'll be much more targetable with treatments and there will be more awareness about fatigue in patients like me. Thank you, Melissa, for being so open about how pain and fatigue impact your life. So, Minnie, can you please share how pain and fatigue have affected your life? Yes, I have had issues with pain and fatigue for as far back as I can remember. I do think they are definitely go hand in hand. The worse the pain, the higher the fatigue. It is just exhausting. I just do what I can to cope. Thank you, Minnie. I couldn't agree more. Dr. Meese, we just heard how pain and fatigue impact the lives of Melissa and Minnie. And like Melissa and Minnie have expressed, pain is an important issue for many of our constituents. What happens in the body to elicit a pain response, and how would you define pain? Scientists have known for centuries that the sensation of pain results from the relay of a noxious, painful stimulus via neurons, which perform like an electrical wiring system in the body. Neurons communicate along their paths via the release of neurochemicals, which transmit signal to the next neuron in the pathway. So from a peripheral site, like putting a finger in a flame or having an inflamed joint in psoriatic arthritis, to the spinal cord and up the spinal cord to pain interpretive centers in the brain, there is a painful stimulus that is transmitted in milliseconds. There is a parallel descending pathway of neurons which serves to temper or ameliorate this pain signal 
using neurochemicals such as norepinephrine, endorphins, and others, which helps bring us back into a pain-free state. In chronic pain conditions, there is an imbalance of these pathways, with the ascending noxious network overpowering the descending inhibitory pathway. This is especially true when a state of central sensitization develops in these neural networks, such as fibromyalgia, in which there is a constant pain experience in addition to the waxing and waning pain experience of a condition like psoriatic arthritis. And what pain responses typically occur with psoriatic arthritis and spondyloarthritis versus fibromyalgia? What are some of the typical symptoms? In psoriatic arthritis or spondyloarthritis, the pain is typically more localized to a specific part of the body, tends to come and go depending on disease flares and treatment of the underlying inflammation. The pain may be described as burning, lancinating, knife-like, and many other adjectives that might be used. In fibromyalgia, the pain tends to be all over, including muscles and joints, tends to be there all of the time, and is typically more widespread, involving lots of muscle areas. Also, patients often describe other symptoms associated with fibromyalgia, such as sleep disturbance, fatigue, cognitive cloudiness, and other symptoms. So, Minnie and Melissa, when did you first notice symptoms such as Dr. Meese just mentioned, indicating that something was wrong? And how long did it take to receive a diagnosis? My symptoms were first noticed by my mom when I was an infant for the psoriasis. But along with that, I had other swelling that she could see of joints. And I remember as a child having the horrible rashes that were on my arms, my neck, and my scalp, and they were very painful. But at the time, we didn't realize that it was a form of arthritis. We just thought maybe it was a heat rash or some kind of allergic reaction or something that was a little bit more simple. But the pain continued throughout my teenage years, and it was then that I really realized that things were a lot more serious as I developed the hip pain and other painful symptoms that came and went with weather changes and different events, different physical things that I would be doing. And it took me until January of 2020 to receive a diagnosis for psoriatic arthritis. But however, I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis at the age of 37. So it it took a long time, but I think that having the treatment for Ankylosing spondylitis helped with the psoriatic arthritis symptoms as well. And Melissa, how about you? So when I was in my early 20s, I was living a very active lifestyle and working out every day. So whenever I experienced fatigue and pain, I honestly just attributed it to whatever rigorous exercises I happened to do that day. But similar to Minnie's experience, this was also at least in part due to the fact that by that time I had been living with severe psoriasis for many years. And I had also experienced significant pain and fatigue through the widespread skin symptoms. So I think my threshold for seeing a doctor was actually a lot higher than it should have been. I finally went to a doctor after I had a really bad ankle injury that just never healed and I had essentially lost function of the joint. So I was kind of forced to see doctors, although even then psoriatic arthritis was not a a quick diagnosis in, in any way. I think looking back, 
had I known more about psoriasis and its potential progression to psoriatic arthritis, I would have been much more invested in finding effective treatments and also just routinely having doctor appointments to check in and reevaluate not just my skin, but also my joint symptoms. Dr. Choi, pain and fatigue are definitely part of the story that you hear from Melissa and Minnie, and they're part of the inner core domain associated with psoriatic arthritis. Do you agree with the observation that there's a bi-directional relationship between pain and fatigue? And how common is fatigue with chronic pain? That's really great comment from Melissa and Millie. So both pain and fatigue are highly ranked by our patients as being very important. They are not the same, but all research has shown that they are strongly associated with one another. And definitely one of the reasons is what Phil has alluded to. Both pain and fatigue can arise from inflammation. And actually, we have witnessed this over the last two years during the pandemic. And the inflammation caused by the coronavirus commonly caused myalgia and fatigue in many, many individuals. So we know for sure inflammation can cause pain and fatigue. The second thing that relates pain and fatigue is that both pain and fatigue are complicated, and Phil has very nicely explained that pain is complicated. There are peripheral components. They're also central components in the brain, and fatigue is the same. And in fact, I think Melissa also mentioned that you can get muscle fatigue, but actually in many of our patients, the fatigue is more central. They suddenly feel drained, even without exercising and they struggle to perform everyday chores. And we definitely know that in patients with chronic unremitting pain, fatigue is common. And in the patients who have chronic fatigue, myalgia is common. And what is interesting is that what is the dominant symptoms probably point us to some differences in the underlying biology. And Dr. Choi, what factors drive fatigue? And how is fatigue different from just feeling tired? And does sleep quality play a role in this? Yes, that's a really great question. So I kind of mentioned that there are many causes of fatigue and both Melissa and Minnie actually has described some form of fatigue symptoms to you. Not uncommon in patients with inflammatory arthritis is that they can get fatigue that come on suddenly, they feel completely drained and they can't do anything. But there's another form of fatigue that is strongly related to sleep quality. So many patients with disrupted sleep quality, and that is independent on how long they have slept, is really how deep they sleep. So many patients with chronic pain get very disrupted sleep pattern. They wake up frequently at night, and no matter how long they sleep, they don't get refreshed in the morning. And one thing that is common to this patient is that they feel fatigue first thing in the morning. And in fact, after they've woken up, the first thing they like to do is get back to sleep. So that is a kind of fatigue that is strongly related to sleep. Interesting. Dr. Mies and Dr. Choi, how do you assess or measure the impact of pain and fatigue in your patients? To start with, I usually ask questions which try to differentiate pain arising from the inflammation of psoriatic arthritis or spondyloarthritis or the itch of psoriasis from the more deep 
and constant ache of fibromyalgia. I ask about the location of pain. Is it centered around certain joints, tendon attachments for the spine? I ask about adjectives which describe its characteristics, time of the day when it is most severe, what tends to improve or worsen it, whether there are associated symptoms like fatigue or cognition problems, and of course, asking about response to treatment. I am also trying to ascertain the difference between the pain of degenerative arthritis, which can also occur concomitantly with psoriatic arthritis, in which the locations and pain patterns may be different. This is all aided by laboratory and imaging assessments. Then I get into asking specific questions about how the pain impacts physical function and quality of life. Can the patient do certain movements that are important for daily tasks and work? Can they attend their child's soccer game or do birthday parties? Does the pain disturb their sleep? And I often ask these questions in relation to a scale, like degree of severity on a zero to 10 scale, and then uh, record that in the chart so that I can come back to it at later times and we can sort of gauge, is there a difference from the previous time or not? So I agree with the approach that Phil has in assessing pain. I'll do a similar thing for assessing fatigue. I will try to ask the patient what kind of fatigue they have to try to understand what may be causing the fatigue, how the fatigue is impact on their daily life, both work and household chores, for example, or social life. And then by understanding how severe and what kind of fatigue it is to discuss with them what may be the best approach to help them to support the management of the fatigue. Thank you, Dr. Choi and Dr. Meese for that information. It's important to know what questions to expect. Minnie and Melissa, from your perspective, what does it feel like to live with psoriatic arthritis and spondylar arthritis? Do you have concerns about what your health will be like in the future? It feels like I am 90 years old all the time. I've just always felt really old. And no, I don't know what it feels like to be 90. I just don't feel like I should be the age that I am. I feel like I need to be oiled or something, like my body is just not loose enough because of the stiffness that accompanies it. The fatigue is overwhelming. It can be stressful. It can be depressing. It's a constant battle and trying to just live and do normal things. My concerns about my future are a little bit better than they once were due to a lot of the recent research in the last decade or two. At one time, I just didn't feel like I would be able to survive mentally getting older because I was in so much pain and there were so few options for treatment. So with the improvements in treatments, I feel like the chances for the future might be better and I may be able to do more because of that. So for me, the general things that I tell my doctor from psoriatic arthritis are stiffness, pain, throbbing, swelling, and tenderness in my joints, which leads to a decreased range of motion. And that's kind of straightforward. But what that really feels like in my life is that my joints are stuck in one place and it hurts just to move. So some days it feels almost impossible in the mornings just to like sit myself up and get out of bed. And in terms of fatigue, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, 
no matter how long I sleep, I wake up exhausted in a way where it can feel like I had never slept at all the night before. But I think it's also really important to talk about how a chronic disease feels emotionally, because emotionally, it can be a whirlwind. The pain can be cyclical or come and go. So while I have good days, I also have bad ones. And the inability to predict my state of health is sometimes very anxiety producing. Unlike psoriasis, where the downside is that it's visually apparent for everyone to see, having psoriatic arthritis is difficult because it's invisible. So on the outside, I appear young and healthy. I find that I have a really hard time telling others that I have it because I feel like I have to convince them, which is really problematic, particularly at work. And I do have concerns about the future for sure, because we know the disease can be progressive and the joint damage is currently irreversible. Just like Minnie mentioned, I do live with a lot of hope, which is wonderful. I know we're making great strides with research and that's leading to the development of new treatments. So a lot of hope. Definitely. Thank you both for your message of hope for the future. So Dr. Meese, we just heard from Melissa and Minnie what it's like to live with psoriatic arthritis and spondyl arthritis and concerns for the future. I'm sure you hear similar comments from other people with such diseases. What treatment choices are available to address management of pain to improve overall quality of life and functioning? Well, to start with, I think that education about the disease inflammation, distinguishing peripheral and central pain elements, and learning about the impact of pain and fatigue on the patient are the first steps in a successful management plan for pain. Further, I try to learn what current or past pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic approaches the patient has employed and their relative benefit, over-the-counter anti-inflammatories, naturopathic remedies, dietary adjustments, acupuncture, physical therapy, physical exercise, CBD preparations, and the like. Then, after having a better understanding of what has gone before, we can open the door to discussion of pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic approaches that the patient hasn't yet tried for treating the inflammatory disease, the various biologic and targeted oral therapies, such as TNF, interleukin-17, interleukin-23, JAK inhibitors, and so on, and for treatment of more centralized pain, various non-narcotic analgesics. Once we have gotten to some options that the patient is willing and interested in trying, then we get into discussion about what our efficacy expectations will be like based on clinical trial data and responses in other patients, and a detailed discussion about potential tolerability and safety concerns and trying to put these in perspective compared to the risk of not doing anything at all and allowing inflammation to proceed unchecked, including the potential of joint structure deterioration and cardiovascular comorbidities. Oftentimes, we don't make a decision in that visit, but the patient may want to sleep on it, both to think about it outside of the pressure of the clinic visit, but also to talk it over with their spouse or friends or their primary doctor. And Dr. Choi, what treatments for pain typically cause or make fatigue worse? Well, opioid analgesics are the typical class of medications that cause fatigue. One other medication that very rarely do cause fatigue is in fact methotrexate. It's actually listed in one of his side effects 
in the formulary, but it's very uncommon and it causes a very unique kind of fatigue. And the patient really notices it after the few days after they take bifitrexate and improve as the week goes on. So just as something to remind our colleagues that occasionally, very rarely, it can happen. So Dr. Choi and Dr. Meese, can you please comment on the use of non-pharmacological interventions to treat pain and fatigue? And how effective are they? Can lifestyle changes help improve chronic pain and fatigue? So for the treatment of fatigue, we definitely have evidence that in fact, exercise and cognitive behavioral therapy are very effective or definitely would improve functionality in patients who are suffering from fatigue. It builds up uh, energy and tolerance and help patients to recover from muscle deconditioning. So the key is to do it gradually and build up the muscle conditions and not try to do too much in one go. I mean, clinicians call it boom and bust. So if you push yourself too hard, then the fatigue can be very severe the next day. The key is to learn how to build up your exercise tolerance gradually. The other is, of course, cognitive behavioral therapy. There are good randomized control trial evidence to show the cognitive behavioral therapy help patients to manage the fatigue. It involves learning what kind of activity tend to precipitate fatigue, recognize symptoms early, but also allow them to understand how to manage these barriers. One of the main things that patients can do for themselves is weight loss. There is copious research that shows that weight reduction can improve symptoms of psoriatic arthritis, and weight loss also facilitates achieving better results from pharmacologic therapy. And the path to weight loss besides dieting methods of the patient's choice, is exercise, which Ernest was describing. Some patients also get pain improvement from some dietary adjustments, physical therapy, massage, and acupuncture. Thank you. I mean, it's definitely good to acknowledge one's limitations and that there are other interventions available. Melissa and Minnie, what treatments have you tried, and how do you cope with chronic pain and fatigue? Minnie, let's start with you. Yes. I have tried a number of supplements to assist me with the fatigue, and I have recently, in conjunction with my doctor, I've found a number of things that have actually helped me with my levels of fatigue and chronic pain. He's explained it to me as the goal of just trying to target the inflammation and other natural ways by giving the body what it needs, and one thing can help the other. And so... It has worked out for me pretty well. I can say the last couple of years, I haven't had the amount of fatigue that I dealt with relentlessly for years. Well, like so many patients, I feel like I have tried it all. From diets and cleanses to herbal remedies, teas and acupuncture, there is a very low threshold for me to try something new if there's even a tiny chance it could help. Ultimately, as I've come to understand my disease and the dangers of disease progression, I've tried different medications, and not all have been effective for me, but I currently take one that's helping a lot. While going through so many treatments has been frustrating and disappointing, sometimes beyond measure, and it has even felt a little scary, 
I'm glad that I did keep trying to find something that works because the relief from pain is so worth it. And I also continue to take a very broad approach to my health. While diet isn't a treatment for my symptoms, I do my best to take care of myself as much as I can with the hope that reducing inflammation from lifestyle changes will also supplement and support my medical treatments. Taking care of yourself is so important. So Dr. Meese and Dr. Joy, how important is treatment to reduce the underlying inflammation that relates to pain and fatigue? As I mentioned earlier, one of the mainstays of treating pain is to treat the inflammation condition that is contributing to it. Using medicines which turn down the volume dial of inflammatory cells, such as lymphocytes, and reduce the production and action of inflammatory molecules, such as TNF, interleukin-17, and interleukin-23, which are noxious stimulants of the nervous system. We have done sophisticated mediation analyses to show that doing this contributes significantly to pain amelioration. But these analyses have also shown us that these medicines appear to be able to have a direct effect on nerve cells to diminish pain. The answer that Phil gave is pretty applicable to fatigue. So we have done research to show that the level of fatigue is often worse in patients with more active disease. And we have conducted systematic review to show that reducing inflammation, particularly with biologic agents and advanced therapies, do reduce fatigue. However, one issue is that is uncommon for fatigue or energy level to recover to complete normality. And this reflects some of the comments that Melissa and Minnie has experienced because pain and fatigue have multi-factors, is unlikely that one single treatment is going to cure fatigue for everybody. It's likely that we need to target inflammation, but we also need to target factors such as sleep and emotional issues. Minnie and Melissa, Dr. Meese and Dr. Choi just indicated how important it is to reduce the underlying inflammation, yet we know access to care can impede the search for effective treatment. Have you ever experienced issues with access to care? And if so, what did you do? Yes, I have experienced issues with access to care, especially during the early part of COVID when it was hard to get an appointment. Basically, what I did is just find another doctor, but one of the issues in my area is we had a limited number of rheumatologists, and so oftentimes you'll find yourself having to wait six to nine months to be able to get in to see someone new. That is always a big problem whenever you're trying to switch physicians. So I was able to find a new rheumatologist that had just opened a practice a few months prior and had openings, and I was able to get in within a few weeks. And so that helped me get back on track and get the medications that I need and be able to get my inflammation under control again. I'm so glad, Minnie, that you were able to find a new doctor. So Melissa, what about you? Have you experienced issues with access to care? Yes, I've definitely experienced problems with lack of access to care. And something that has also been problematic for me is the lack of access to continued care such as if an insurance company decides to suddenly stop covering a medication, even if I've been taking it and it's working really well. 
that can feel extremely emotional because there's a lot at stake here. In the past, I have contacted the National Psoriasis Foundation for help through their patient navigation center. And they helped me find a healthcare provider, provided information about treatments and health insurance, and even found programs that helped lower the cost of my treatment. So I definitely recommend the National Psoriasis Foundation as a resource for any patient who is not only newly diagnosed, but just holds that diagnosis and is looking for help. Thank you, Minnie and Melissa. I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to your experiences. Dr. Meese and Dr. Choi, do you have any comments you'd like to add about the issue of access to care? Well, this is a big subject area, but just a few points. Clearly, there is a huge problem in our U.S. society about equitable access to care. There are many people who lack adequate care because of income disparity, lack of education, lacking time to get off work for doctor's visits, lack of transportation, lack of support, especially the elderly. Our system provides good care for those that don't experience these disparities, but that leaves many people out in the cold. Even for those with good insurance, it is often a struggle for the patient and doctor to have access to all of the medicines that could be brought to bear due to cost or other problems. It takes a village, reimbursement specialist within the doctor's office, a resourceful patient to navigate the insurance maze, and a clear understanding of treatment goals in order to get the patient into remission or low disease activity state. I know that the healthcare provision in some of the European countries is more equitable because of greater government involvement and provision of care. But I'm sure that Ernest has his fair number of stories about difficulties with the healthcare system of the United Kingdom as well. It is also important for the patient to be able to work with a clinician who is empathic, listens to them, and has an understanding of the different sources of pain and fatigue in order to help orchestrate the right mix of therapies. I don't know I can add too much to what Phil has said already. As you know, I work in the UK and we don't have an insurance-based system, so we don't face the same barrier as patients face in the US. So true. Thank you, Dr. Mies and Dr. Choi for providing such great points. Minnie and Melissa, how do you talk with your doctors about chronic pain and fatigue? Do you have any tips to help others have such conversations? Minnie? I speak very openly. I think you have to be short and to the point, but you have to use some strong descriptive words to be able to let them know that I'm really suffering or I'm really struggling. I feel like I'm going downhill, just something that can really get their attention. I think that is important to also be mindful that most of the time the doctors do have a limited amount of time with you. So to be able to say something that's going to get their attention so that they can quickly come up with an action plan of care for you to be able to move forward in your treatment and try to get on a better path. So my tips to other patients are to do the same. And Melissa, what about you? Well, in the past, I've actually found it really challenging to talk about pain and fatigue with my doctor, especially as Minnie said, the doctor appointments can be really short. But one day, another patient recommended a symptom journal to me, which is where you just keep a log of your symptoms and any precipitating factors or things that stick out about a disease experience or a flare. When I first 
heard about a symptom journal, it felt a little bit silly to me or like overkill. Like I was overthinking all of my symptoms, but I decided to give it a try. And I was so surprised how helpful it was. When I started keeping track of my symptoms, I was able to communicate better with my physician and give them information to direct or redirect our treatment approach. I also felt really validated in knowing and documenting what was going on in my body. As Dr. Meese mentioned, there's so much stigma around pain and fatigue, but these experiences are real and they're problematic when inadequately addressed. So I encourage patients to keep track of what's going on with them and to speak up even if it feels difficult. Thank you both for providing such helpful tips. This has been such an amazing discussion today. Do you have any final message you'd like to share with our listeners? Let's start with Minnie and Melissa. One of my most important things that I learned along this journey is that you just have to take the disease one day at a time. There are times when you're going to feel overwhelmed due to the pain and fatigue, but you just have to take it one day at a time and do not overthink your future. You can plan for it and everything, but you don't know when you're going to get better. You don't know what research is on the horizon all the time and when things are going to improve. So just stay focused on one day at a time. Well, I hate giving this advice, but in patients who are experiencing pain and fatigue, although we may not have the energy for this, it is just so important to advocate for yourself wherever you can and to know that your symptoms are real and valid. Sometimes it's important to advocate for yourself at work if you need accommodations in order to do your job well. And other times it's important to advocate for yourself at the physician's office and say, I need another appointment or I need to address this pain in a different way than we're going right now. It's just important to speak up for yourself. And I hope that by listening to this podcast, hearing our experiences, patients may be encouraged and empowered to do so. And Dr. Choi and Dr. Meese, do you have any final comments you'd like to share? Oh, well, I, it's hard to follow from those really helpful suggestions, but I would definitely encourage patients to talk to your physician about it. Our understanding of pain and fatigue have advanced over the last 20 years. And uh, whilst we may not have a complete cure, we can definitely help to restore patients to function as well as they could and manage their everyday life. I say amen to the comments from Minnie, Melissa, and Ernest. While we have emphasized advances in our understanding of the pathophysiology of pain and fatigue and the increasing ability of both medicines and non-medicinal therapeutic approaches to improve pain and fatigue, we have also emphasized the challenges of finding a good and trusting clinician-patient relationship wherein the clinician takes time and effort to more fully understand the patient's experience and the patient more clearly enunciates their experience of pain and fatigue and needs so that the clinician can best respond. This means constant work on the relationship and maintaining clear communication. Thank you, Dr. Meese, Dr. Choi, Melissa, and Minnie for sharing your thoughts about how to manage and cope with chronic pain and fatigue. You provided some really valuable information today. You can find more information about spondyloarthritis through the Spondylitis Association of America at spondylitis.org and learn more about psoriatic arthritis from the National Psoriasis Foundation at psoriasis.org. Join us again in October for the next CAPES episode when we discuss the treatments for psoriatic arthritis and spondyloarthritis and how you and your doctor identify the best treatment for you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. 
If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Soundbites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Ghana, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.